Hello, this is the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you're a return listener from episode one, welcome back. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And we're rereading the Jack Aubrey, Stephen Matron novels by Patrick O'Brien. Last week, we got started with Master and Commander, the first in the series. Remind me, Ian, what did we cover? Well, Mike, we got uh, about partway through the book, about halfway through the book. Uh, we talked about the origins of the novels themselves, the Aubrey Maturin books. Um, we came across the first encounters between Stephen and Jack and the beginning of their bromance. Um, and we had the emerging story of this extra character, James Dillon. And I think, Mike, as, as we left the story... Um, Jack Aubrey, the captain of the Sophie, and Stephen, his new friend and the surgeon, were getting settled in aboard this new command, the Sophie. Um, Stephen was coming to terms with his new life as a naval surgeon. Right. And and that first lieutenant, James Dillon, he was kind of wrestling with his conscience. Uh, he was a former Irish renegade and sort of falling out with some other members of the crew of the Sophie. So that was kind of our uh, our big list of questions as we finished up last time, wasn't it? What's finally going to happen, not only with James, but also with Jack and Stephen and the crew of the Sophie? Um, we've got things to resolve in their life ashore. And obviously, we're expecting that um, some stuff's going to happen at sea as well. That means we're going to talk about Jack and his relationship with Molly Hart, move on to the falling out between James Dillon and Mr. Marshall, the master of the Sophie, and then ultimately find out whether the Spanish Navy got anything up their sleeve to stop Lucky Jack Aubrey from plundering their shipping so successfully. Right, so we've got plenty to talk about. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to pick up on something that we started looking at last week, and that was these crossovers between the book Master and Commander and the Master and Commander movie starring Russell Crowe. Great idea. Now, we already talked about Jack's anecdote and speech about Nelson, who was clearly a hero to Jack. I think there are a couple more moments that crossed over. That's right. There's the operation on the gunner. In one of the early actions, the gunner receives a fractured skull from a piece of uh, debris falling on his head during a fight. And um, Stephen does this kind of trepanning procedure, this operation where um, he's going to basically drill a hole in the man's skull and relieve pressure and take away the clotting. And then he replaces the, um, the skull fragment with a, um, with a hammered out coin. Interestingly, in the book, it's only ever done in reported speech. So we hear Jack sometime afterwards talking to others about how Maturin had done this, this great feat of surgery in the movie because it's got great visual potential, obviously a good yuck moment. Um, we actually see this happen, and on the deck of the surprise, um, the gunner's brains are re- revealed and set to rights, and the the wound is fixed up by Maturin, and the gunner re- recovers, and that's the that's used as the touchstone all the way through the novels for just what a great and admirable uh, surgeon Maturin is in the eyes of the navy. Well, I just thought it was fascinating to me the way, as exactly as you just described it, that here's this fabulous scene, and O'Brien does it, if you will, off camera. Off camera, I remember I went back and I kept right. thinking, gosh, wait a minute, I was listening to the book and this has happened, but I don't remember it happening. Let me go back and see if I kind of dozed or something and kept going back and I couldn't find it. And then, you know, you and I were talking and you said, well, it's actually not in the book except to refer back to it, which is fabulous. Right. <laughs> Very clever. So, and you see the different priorities. Again, the, the movie director wanting a visual and a memorable bit of action and 
the author using it as part of a backstory, really, and able to kind of refer to it indirectly. Um, the third bit of uh, Russell Crowism in the book that I picked up anyway was when the Sophie is being chased by a French frigate through the night and to throw the frigate off the scent, they put a raft over the back of the ship with lanterns yeah. on to look like the stern lanterns of the ship. They douse the ship's own stern lanterns and then we have this thing where as the Sophie kind of heads off in a different direction and we hear and see gunfire as the French frigate kind of opens fire on this decoy raft that was left out there. Told, I think, equally well in the novel and in the film. Absolutely true, yes. One of the things that I find really pleasing and familiar in the way yeah, the, the situations that O'Brien puts his characters in, he loves a good dinner, right? He puts yes. Stephen and Jack together in a dinner and he kind of lays, he describes the menu and what they drank. And there's there are there's a, there's a dinner earlier on in the uh, voyage of the Sophie where Stephen kind of gets to know the officers and the kind of warrant officers in the in the gun room, and then there's another dinner as people are feeling now pretty uneasy. It's obvious that James Dillon isn't super happy in his role, doesn't have a hundred percent respect for Jack, even though Jack's the captain, and kind of tensions are emerging between the between the members of the gun room. Dillon and Marshall are not on speaking terms. Um, now and Marshall, Marshall, the master, right? Marshall's the master, right? Yeah, yes. exactly. So Marshall's the warrant officer, master, the sailing master, as opposed to Aubrey, who's the master and commander. Marshall is somebody who holds a warrant rather than a commission. He's a professional sailor um, who is kind of treated as just about a social equal by the by the officers, but is there to kind of to con the ship when it's in action and there to kind of supervise the navigation and the watch keeping and stuff. So Marshall's a key figure on the ship, but he's a little bit separate from the gun room and he's a little bit separate socially in general. And he's clearly separate from Dylan because he and Dylan really don't see eye to eye. There's a lot of mutual suspicion there. And poor Mr. Ricketts, who's a bit hapless anyway, he's the purser. Right. Um, he's in one of these great comic moments. He's demonstrating a swim stroke in the gun room dinner. He knocks wine and then a dish and gravy and meat or whatever into Marshall's lap. And Marshall's scots by kind of extraction. And we get this great line of comic dialogue from Patrick <laughs> O'Brien. Marshall says, ah, you've been, you're prating like a horse and otter. By the way, I've no idea what an otter might do that would cause it to, to be described as prating, but never mind. You're prating like a horse and otter. You've wrecked my best nankeen trousers. And I love how he phoneticizes this Scottish accent just enough that you can really hear this indignant um, you know, outburst from Marshall. My best nankeen trousers. Now, <laughs> as, as well as laughing at the dialogue and the kind of comic setup of it, or how he gets us there, he's... He's using really, really interesting language. Yeah, prating. I went online to find out what, what prating is. The verb to prate is to talk foolishly or at tedious length about something. Yeah, okay, good. Looking on Google Ngram, which is a tool I discovered like the other day, Google Ngram Viewer lets you track the usage of a word over time. And prating is a word that O'Brien's chosen to use that's got usage that's highly specific to the first decade of the 19th century. It reached peak usage in 1818, and it was down to half by 1850. So in wow. picking up this slightly Jane Austen-type word, prating, he hasn't just gone for generic, archaic-sounding words. He's gone for words that are really part of the kind of the colorful, you know, everyday language of the very early 19th century. So either, either O'Brien had access to lexicographic tools like Google Ngram in the late <laughs> 60s, mm -hmm, 
Or maybe he just built his vocabulary with loads and loads of background reading, very, very highly specific early 19th century sources. Jane Austen and who else? I don't know. Journals, letters, maybe. Um, so prating has a highly specific early to early 19th century word. So so is nankeen, by the way, for the fabric the trousers are made out of. Um, so are other favorite Patrick O'Brien words, commodious and scrupled and rout. Somewhere else in Master and Commander, we get a, a description of a party as being a rout. And that's a very, very kind of early 19th century word. So I just really love the fact that he's been so scholarly but also kind of serving all his scholarship up with such kind of humor and interest and kind of, uh, you know, putting a human face on it as well. It does make it an, an absolute delight. And again, you can, as, as you just so beautifully demonstrated, you can dig into this and say, wow, look at that. Or you can go, prating, no idea what that is. Think I'll move on. Yeah, but I, I can still kind of get guess the, fact the context that, and I'll move on. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's fabulous. And it's great, you know, in that case, you can read it and the way he has written it, you can hear it in your ear. And listening to a narrator, uh, Patrick Dahl happens to be my favorite, but yeah, yeah, it comes right out and right to the fore and brings a smile to your face. You can just imagine these guys around their, their dinner. Yeah. There are, there are writers who kind of phoneticize, you know, all of our language and all of our dialect or all of an accent. If you read, read an Irving Welsh novel like train spotting and it's written you know syllable for syllable as a as a replica of the dialect spoken by the characters but he doesn't do that he puts in you know no. he spells trousers with an r with an a at the end to to kind of call to mind the idea of a scottish accent right interestingly he doesn't do it with very many accents so he doesn't do it at all with irish there are plenty of irish characters beginning with stephen maturin and james Durham, and others in the later novels and they're all given beautifully authentic sounding Irish usage, you can kind of hear it in every kind of the structure of every sentence that these people are, are you know, speak English in an Irish way, but he doesn't ever phoneticize the accent, but he does for the Scots. He does sometimes for the French and the Spaniards and the Scandinavians, um, doesn't for many others. And I kind of wonder where he was, where he was going with accents, maybe because he's got Irish heritage, he takes takes the the accent of ireland more seriously than he takes the accent of scotland and he doesn't want to kind of make it a comic thing or maybe he's just got you know maybe the the, the scottish accent's just kind of sitting in his head and he's playing it out uh, for fun in this particular scene well and i don't know whether we want to go there or not but but marshall you know also stands out for other reasons as well um these two men one of them clearly has has t- a tender affection at least for another the other jack aubrey has no idea what's going on and has com- is completely tone deaf to, Absolutely. The, to the personal side of this oh, i was gonna say you even hear the the guys in the rigging you know sort of saying ah you know the master has a fondiness oh. for old goldilocks there uh yeah, so it's yeah. it's it clearly is out there but also you see this guy accepted in his great the great craftsmanship that the master brings to this and again the nuances and subtleties and how this plays out in relationships not only in these scenes but over time through the book it's just a vital piece of it this is real historical fiction because it's real life and it is life in all of its abundance it's fascinating to me that 
this is not the stuff of a typical men's novel. It's not the stuff of a typical bromance. I think it's probably not the stuff of typical 1800s naval fiction to get really into these characters, which O'Brien does. And he talks about, you know, what's the motivation behind Molly Hart? What are more deeply the motivations around Jack Aubrey? And part of this theme that says what they do sometimes to their great glory on the sea, they unwittingly sabotage by their actions on land. None more telling than uh, Jack with Molly Hart that uh, if you really want to be successful, don't be sleeping with your commander's wife and certainly don't be obvious about it. And you you, you talked about the motivations that the consequences are not great either, are they? He gets... You know, yes, he, he gets the stink eye from from the naval establishment pretty, pretty, pretty comprehensively. And uh, I guess it's not a spoiler to say Molly doesn't really see the relationship as anything, anything that's kind of for the long term. She she pretty much uses him and dumps him. No, she really does. And and at one point, Jack even reflects on this and sees Molly with all these other potential. It's not suitors, but it's you know all these admirers, and. He even says she, you know, he kind of calls her for a little bit of what she is acting like and says, yes, but she's only there for the successful. So it's for him kind of a way of measuring his status. When his status is low, she doesn't seem to have much time or attention for him. When his status is quite high, he's the man. And boy, he is a bit addicted to that, uh, to his chagrin. Uh, One of uh, Stephen Matron's friends who happens to be a surgeon there at the Naval Hospital on Mahan is is trying to warn Stephen to warn Jack that he needs to cool this because it's really going to get in the way. And Stephen takes it upon himself to say, you know, he's going to transmit the message, but he's not sure that anything short of castration may have the desired effect. <laughs> so another thing that that really fascinated me in all this was this idea of of Stephen and James Dillon and Jack Aubrey, um, you know, the thought that they are each their own people, their own person. They're alike in some ways, they're different in some ways, and they have so many things intruding on their friendships. And part of this are these, Stephen tells this story at one point about, and it refers back to a story that I, I don't know, um, about a guy that has a donkey and there's two mangers sort of equidistant apart from this donkey and the donkey dies because he can't decide which manger to go eat out of. You know, do I go oh, that way? Do I go this way? And Stephen uses that as a way to illustrate the fact that he's watching Jack and James being torn apart with each other because they're serving all these different masters, different kind of masters here. They've got their sense of duty, their sense of honor, their sense of what comes from being an officer, what comes from being, you know, a lieutenant versus a captain, a lieutenant versus a captain, what comes from being a Christian versus a Catholic versus some other uh, uh, hang on, code wait. or Christ, Christian versus Catholic. Do you want to try that one again? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so sorry. Yes. Some some particular flavor of Protestant. And, and, and Jack does a great job of, of calling them all out. Listen to me. Oh my gosh. See, now, now that was, was an Aubreyism in, in real life. Exactly. <laughs> I'm married to a systematic theologian who would put me on the skewer and uh, uh, rig me right to the cat for talking like that. 
Now that sounds like uh, the kinds of comment that uh, that Jack would have made to James <laughs> Dillon in that conversation, <laughs> and wondering why it all went south, right? Yeah, Fantastic. but this whole idea of of these different things, and then Stephen says it, it's it's that, and the, it kind of intertwines. We were talking about authority. Um, you know, he's thinking about Jack, and he says his cheerfulness at all events is with him still. How long will it last? What yeah. woman? political cause, disappointment, wound, disease, untoward child, defeat. What strange, surprising accident will take it all away? And Stephen seems to to look at, you know, the three of them and say, we're all kind of at that point in life where we're about to no longer have this infinite set of potentials out in front of us but we're about to hit our groove and we will for the rest of our lives deepen this groove and be locked into courses of action. And that a, and, you know, part of what happened is we'll lose our cheerfulness. And he talks yeah. about how men in authority in particular, that they seem to lose their cheerfulness. And he says, you know, and most of them are rarely barely human, if human at all anymore. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I've always enjoyed this kind of the, 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 the tone of this kind of objection that Stephen has to authority, but I, I can't get along with it. You know, I, I, there are jovial, cheerful, generous, you know, leaders and potentates and monarchs from time to time. Not, it's not guaranteed by any means. So, you know, I think it, 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 this allows me to kind of paint him into the, into the model of, you know, he's a bit cussed. He's a bit of a kind of grump, um, but, you know, he's, he's good company for all of that. There you go. Well, and at the same time, we hear these words out of Stephen's mouth. You know, O'Brien gives us Jack as always the counterexample yeah. to say, exactly. yeah, yeah, there, there's a minute he's in that groove, then he's right out of it. Then he's in that groove, then he's right out of it. So, and Stephen as well seems to jump in and out of his groove, which I love. Yeah. We're going to take a break for a few moments right now. Um, we hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We'll be right back with you very shortly after this short interval. Welcome back to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Well, speaking of grooves, it's funny the, uh, the, 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 the track across the ocean of the Sophia, she's coasting down the coast of uh, Catalonia of Spain, is eventually going to intersect with, uh, with the groove of the Spanish frigate Cacafuego, who's we've already been sort of introduced to a little bit as this kind of forceful ship. Um, Stephen went ashore and got some intelligence We'll, we'll discover more about that side of his character later. He went ashore, got some intelligence that said the Spaniards have raised up this frigate uh, that's going to come and kind of take care of the Sophie, this British kind of pain in the ass that's been taking all these uh, all these prizes from Spanish and French commerce. And we have this all-seeing eye thing where Patrick O'Brien lets us kind of see that these tracks are going to intersect across the ocean eventually. And also that the track of the lives of our kind of three main characters, Dylan and Stephen and Jack are on course for 
what you might call the big denouement, right? The, 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 the big action scene. So rather matter of factly and without very much of a kind of drum roll, O'Brien says, yes, one morning as the mist cleared, there was the cacafuego. All this brooding, all this not getting along, and all of a sudden there's a there's an earlier brush with some gunboats, yeah. uh, which seem to be drawing them in, and sure enough, drawing them in in this way. And all of a sudden, James is in a better mood. Yeah. Uh, the crew's a little uneasy, but uh, Jack is just delighted. James right. is delighted. They anticipate this bloody action. Uh, they even say, "Well, you know, perhaps we should put on silk stockings." And Stephen's like. Why Why would I care about that? They said, wow, it's easier for the surgeon if he has to cut one up. <laughs> Just by all means, <laughs> put on your silk stockings. But here they are, small Sophie. Um, Ian, do you remember Sophie's guns? Oh, uh, seven aside, 14 guns. She's a, 14. She's, a, she's a brig of 14 guns, and Cacafuego is a, a Zebec frigate of 32 guns. So yeah, uh, in terms of 32. size and men and weight of metal, you know, outgunning out by probably three or four to one. Yeah, you know, 50 or fewer men against 300 or so men. Here we are, and and this is, you know, one of those kind of conflicts that is, you know, if you want a full-blown episode of ship-to-ship combat narrated from the midst of the action with victory unsure, absolutely unsure, until the last moment, individual bravery, sleight of hand, chance, this is it. It's exquisitely Absolutely. written. Yeah, there's a there's a tiny bit of melodrama. You know, he asked Stephen if uh, if he'll come with him. You know, here we are, Stephen. I don't want to deny you the chance as all of us rush on board to try to, you know, almost suicidally take on this ship with all these incredible odds stacked against us. Stephen, who right. is opposed to, you know, taking somebody's life in less than a dueling situation, says, no, no. I'll stay, I'll stay and I'll steer, you know, I'll man the helm. I'll be the single crew of the Sophie left. And, and of course, this turns out to be the ultimate catharsis for James Dillon. Absolutely. Dillon is I've been I'm looking gonna, for I'm going to jump in there, Mike. I'd, I'd, before we get into the James Dillon thing, I've got to say, I bumped a little bit. I bumped a little bit on the six-week time-served newbie landlubber surgeon philosopher irishman <laughs> taking the helm of one of her majesty's brigs oh, right and the, and the skipper going yeah just point her over there layers alongside it'll be fine like i the the, the sailor in me thinks oh that's that's just a little bit melodrama too much i think for me but anyhow it, it, well, I, it, absolutely making the point that there's only going to be one person left steering the uh, the Sophie because they need every single man, every man jack, the cooks, the 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 servants, the sweepers, the loblolly boy, everybody is going to have to take part in this action to board the Cacafuego, yes. which of course means you know the the ultimate, as you say, ultimate catharsis for for James Dillon, right? For sure, uh, and, and Dillon's been looking for action. He's been wanting something that would allow him to resolve all these great conflicts inside of him. And and it looks almost like, I, I want to say, sort of a, an, an honorable suicide or something like that. Or this idea of I can now, having, having in his own mind, besperched his honor earlier, say clearly here, my courage, my honor, my duty, I am going to be at the very forefront of that, come what may. And we can kind of admire that. But you think, my gosh, is it worth 
Is it worth, you know, the sacrifice? You know, is it worth this guy's life? Right. And I, I have to honestly admit here that uh, in, in that scene, having knowing exactly what was happening, having read it before and heard it before, and even listening to it again a couple times, preparing for these podcasts, I cried every yeah. time. And yeah. I I was comforted by the fact that, and here's here's a little insight into O'Brien and Jack Aubrey and this series, that I counted at least two or three times so far in the book where Jack Aubrey has cried. And I thought, wow, 1800s written back in the 60s, not by right. somebody who was peace, love, and sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or whatever I was back in those days. Um, <laughs> too young for any of that. But still, you know, the book being the book that it is brings your heart and your mind and to all this action as well. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's really, he's, he's done such a great job getting us to this moment, getting the characters to this moment. And it's played with just the right tone. Oh, it's just—it's just a great, a great moment. You think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm in a real, real story here. Now, I—I I, want to kind of flip, if it's okay, Mike, straight into the next round of action because it's really interesting. In many other kind of naval fiction novels, and probably also in a few of the other Patrick O'Brien novels, that the big action set piece would be the end. Oh, absolutely. You know, every yeah. every movie, every book, every other thing of, of what you would think is the ilk of this. Absolutely. The, the enemy's colors are hauled down, the crew cheers, the, the vanquished are taken prisoner, hand over their swords, hand over their flags, and you know the sun sets and martial stirring music roll credits. And, and glory to our heroes. And glory to our heroes. But right. like so many other moments, you know, O'Brien's <laughs> going to undercut the glory yeah. and keep it spinning for another couple of chapters so right. there's more to come and even it even we get this in the the wikipedia summary right it says a victory against such odds would normally bring official recognition promotion and significant prize money but unfortunately for aubrey his superior at mahon is captain hart captain hart husband of molly captain hart to use their 19th century phrase the the cuckold who's had his cuckold horns placed on him by jack right. aubrey we get another premonition, I think, of how O'Brien's going to write the, these stories as they unfold. Jack almost never gets kind of 100% hubris. He almost never gets an unalloyed victory with a big payoff. And we go back into Mahon and he takes the Cacafuego in as a prize. And it's a very mixed picture. He gets, you know, candid and friendly admiration from fellow officers. And I, it's funny, you talk about what moves you. I'm very moved by the really kind of generous recognition that he gets from you know from fellow officers and from people ashore people who will cross the street to say that was something great that you did and that i don't know where that comes from but i think that really sets sets the tone that this is a really you know the the praise of your peers and the praise of people around you is kind of really really affirming and i like that i like it that jack manages to get that admiration and it's really great writing of course that it's never um a hundred percent great because it's undercut by you know intrigue intrigue certainly on the part of captain hart and intrigue on the part of the rest of the naval hierarchy um so straight away sophie's back at sea straight away albeit without dylan with a with a with a new and rather you know undistinguished first lieutenant the sophie's back out on relatively kind of mundane duty roaming the coastline um and she's actually sent with dispatches i think she's sent to escort um, a, a packet, a ship carrying dispatches, and she gets caught out. 
and we have this very, very short, but I think really affecting kind of scene of dread as the Sophie realizes that just a f- even though just a few pages ago, they were all ashore getting debauched and celebrating the great victory over the Cacafuego. Not only is Aubrey being kind of denied some of his desserts by authority, he's now through sheer bad luck and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's stuck between Ali Shore and this French squadron um, who are massively superior in force. And it's very, very clear quickly that these French ships are going to outsail them. These French ships are just as savvy and crafty and skillful in handling their ships as Aubrey is in handling the Sophie. They throw the guns over the side. They throw the water over the side. They get out the sweeps, which are the, you know, the oars, the great big oars that you could use to propel a tiny brig like the Sophie. Officers and men alike, all pulling at the sweeps, trying to escape the clutches of this uh, this French ship, this, this French squadron. And without a very, very kind of long, drawn-out um, kind of telling of the story, they're captured. That's it. A couple of broadsides are exchanged. The colours come down, and Aubrey and the whole crew are a prisoner. So I love this juxtaposition, the kind of the dread and the resignation as Sophie's end comes. And then also, quite quickly, we get into this kind of charming and humorous story of their captivity. It doesn't last very long, but they're aboard the Dissex, the um, uh, the French frigate, um, captained by uh, Christy Pallier. Captain Christy Pallier, by the way, is a real person. He was you know, a, a real um, French captain who skippered absolutely this same vessel. Uh, and he's very charming. He's an Anglophile. And he treats the crew very warmly, certainly treats the officers warmly. And we get this back to kind of drawing room British humor and kind of bucolic feeling as the French captain entertains Aubrey and his crew. One of the things that I love here is the ups and the downs that we've had with our major protagonists in the story, with what, you know, counter to the expectations of how a novel like this would end. And you might still think, Okay, so this is it. And we're about to get yet another couple in quick succession. Um, when, and I'm thinking specifically about uh, them sitting on the island, which I'm, I think you're about to talk about, Ian, that watching uh, the English engage here. And then if, if you'll kind of take us through the end of this, because it's amazing. We've got this, that Jack has lost his ship and, I didn't know as 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 a lover quite how to feel about that or what would come of that. And that's brilliantly presented. And then the whole context around them and how that might be judged goes several different directions, one right after another. Right. Because Jack's going to be judged, and Stephen's kind of learning this, that Jack's going to be subject to a court-martial, which his career is threatened for having lost his ship in whatever circumstances. And Stephen realizes and learns that as one of the officers in one of the ship's company, he is effectively under scrutiny from the court-martial, although Jack tries to say, you know, it, it, it's nothing. You're just there to validate the story of the captain. It's pretty clear from what other people are saying about a court-martial that this is not a trivial thing. This is not a formality. So this is all taking place at the same time as the real-life uh, battles, plural, battles of Algeciras um, happened in real life. Um, and for me, this is kind of a bonus. You, you might think that the, the action against the Cacafuego was a, was a denouement for everybody who was following the stories of James and Jack and Stephen and the story of the Sophie and her crews. And that was the kind of storytelling payoff. For me, the, the Algeciras action, which we see almost indirectly, is, is the payoff for the naval history nerds 
who want to uncover, you know, where in real history, where in the real timeline of the Napoleonic Wars have our heroes actually got to? So, and the answer is Jack and Stephen and the rest are cast ashore on parole in Gibraltar opposite Algeciras Bay from where the French fleet or the French squadron are are moored. And this is going to be July 4th, 1801, which is when Admiral Somarez and a British small fleet, you might say, squadron came into contact with, first of all, the French squadron and then a combined French and Spanish force to fight the two battles of Algeciras. So July 4th, July 13th, 1801, this was real stuff. And the characters in the novel, Somarez, Ferris, the French Admiral Lenoir, the French Captain Christy Pallier, uh, uh, an English captain called Dundas, who's going to appear later on in the Ulri Maturin stories. Those are all real characters and the names of the ships that they served on are part of the record of the Algeciras campaign as well. So as I say, if you're a history nerd like me, you're kind of really relishing the fact that we've tied in even temporarily to the real timeline of the of the, of the history of the Royal Navy in France. So there's the first stage of the Battle of Algeciras where the French squadron gets caught up alongside, inshore, alongside the British vessels. The British vessels are badly damaged. One of them has to cut its anchor rope and is kind of um, cut its anchor cable, sorry, and runs aground. French ships run aground. Ships are towed away, almost, you know, almost damaged beyond repair. And they go alongside in Gibraltar to regroup. And we get the story of, you know, repairing of one of the uh, one of the British line of battleships by the light of you know burning wood fires on the uh, on the harbour side in Gibraltar, and then we get the second Battle of Algeciras where the French Spanish fleet and the English fleet go offshore and they duke it out in the middle of the night, and Aubrey and Maturin are sitting on the top of a hillside at Gibraltar, high on the rock of Gibraltar, looking out and seeing just hints of the second Battle of Algeciras. And it's a brilliant choice for me, the the choice of the point of view that the author takes. This is the moment to please a history nerd. So we get all of the panorama. We get all of the context. We can see the battle unfolding without being on the on the gun deck once again, kind of in the heat of the action. It brings back to me and and Patrick O'Brien had done in a forward to Master and Commander to say, essentially, every battle in these books is an actual battle with actual right. ships that he may have renamed for purposes of his story and he might have changed the timing around a little bit uh, with some events leading up to it but that the battles themselves were real and so for me listening to this you know you just had this action with the cacafuego these overwhelming odds here now english have got the winning odds and somehow the french get out from under them. You know, Jack tells the English captain that uh, we'll all be having dinner. You know, I'll be hosting you as my prisoner before the day is out. But lo and behold, the British suffer, you know, are, are pretty embarrassed by this first action. And now, oh my gosh, nobody on Gibraltar is happy. And so I'm going to have this court martial when we've lost yet more, another ship. And how's this going to go? And yeah. then this battle in the night. And as you say, this incredible point of view, because, oh my gosh, all this stuff is happening. And we, like our, through the eyes of our protagonist, have no idea, unless you're a history buff like you, what the outcome is. Right. We thought the the, the turnaround of the denouement of the Cacafuego action was great, but actually we get it, we get a, an even bigger payoff. You get an even bigger gush of kind of gratification at this, this big victory with a big historical context and it comes along with, I think it's kind of inevitable. At least I felt that way when the second battle of Algeciras is won and there's this great victory. I, th- I think the tide has turned. And I certainly wasn't surprised when we get the last chapter and Aubrey's court martial takes place. 
And yeah, even in this atmosphere of, you know, will they, won't they? I, you know, for me, it was coming that the court martial was going to be okay. So finally, 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 Jack gets his payoff. Um, even though the moment is undercut in true Patrick O'Brien style by him, you know, standing up and crashing his head against a beam, just as the president of the court martial is reading out the verdict of acquittal, because acquittal is what it is. They restoring Jack's honor. And you might say the whole of this story is about Jack's honor. Um, and I just love the final speech. And I'm going to kind of close out with the final speech of the president of the court martial, which is the final words of the book. In delivering to you your sword, Captain Aubrey, I congratulate you upon its being restored by both friend and foe alike, hoping ere long you will be called upon to draw it once more in the honourable defence of your country. So, Mike. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. Amen. <laughs> so, I, I think that might be our show. What do you think, Mike? Oh, yeah. What a great book. What oh, a great book. Fantastic book. And just the first. And just the first. So Yes, there's been much more to come. Much more to come. This has been the first of what we hope will be many Lubbers Hole podcasts to come. And we hope you've enjoyed walking through the story and rediscovering the story of Master and Commander with us. We've had a whale of a time talking about it. And thank you for being uh, our company along the journey. If you've enjoyed sharing this time with us, please subscribe. Please tell your friends. So, Ian, what do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, Mike, with all my heart. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lubbers Hole. And we're on Twitter right now. Our Twitter handle is at Hole Lubbers. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, who? What? Who does it mean? <laughs>